All right, welcome to TYT interviews. We've got a great interview for you guys today. Carl Dix, he's what co-initiated Rise Up October. Uh, that's what uh, got Quentin Tarantino in the news and the police so mad at him. That's why you might have heard of Rise Up October. What we want to do today is dive a little bit more into details, find out what it's about. Uh, Carl, thanks for joining us on The Young Turks. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. All right. So first, let's start with Rise Up October. What's that all about? What it's about is police are getting away with murder in this society. And we have seen it. We've seen videos of people beaten to death, choked to death, tased to death, shot to death. And we have seen cops who have been doing this murder, because that, I can only call it what it really is, being exonerated again and again by the legal system. Now, a beautiful movement of protest arose in response to these horrors spread across the country. And the response of the authorities was to double down on unleashing the cops to brutalize and murder people, to continue to exonerate them, and to try to suppress the protest movement. Hit it with, uh, you know, mass arrest, threats of heavy charges. And Cornell West and I, who uh, together formed the Stop Mass Incarceration Network, felt like a call had to be issued for people to get back out into the streets, get out into the streets with more power and determination, because these horrors had to be stopped. And we decided to do it in October and to call it Rise Up October, Stop Police Terror, Which Side Are You On? Because we felt that challenge needed to be put to people very broadly in society. You've seen the police kill people. You've seen the police get away with killing people. You've seen people killed and then demonized by the police in order to justify their killings. Well, now that you've seen it, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be on the side of acting to stop it? Or are you on the side of it's okay for it to continue happening? So, Carl, that's the word that got Tarantino in so much quote-unquote trouble. It wasn't really trouble. It was just people aggravated against them, uh, the word murder, right? So I think for uh, people on the other side uh, who don't see it as murder, they go, hey guys, what are you, what are you talking about? If, if Eric Garner and all these other guys had just cooperated with police, we never would have had this uh, trouble in the first place. And the cops have a tough job, their lives are in danger all the time, and they got to subdue the guy somehow, right? So what do you want them to do is a question that they would ask you. Well, let me just say two things. First, stop killing us. Second, we do not yet live in a police state. It is not yet the case that anything that a police officer says or does is justified by the mere fact that he's, he or she is a police officer. There is still a question of rights and laws. Eric Garner had done nothing wrong. He hadn't even sold loose cigarettes. That day he had broken up a fight. But even if he had sold loose cigarettes, you don't get arrested for selling loose cigarettes. That's a violation. You get a ticket. So there was no real reason for them to take him into custody. He hadn't done anything. And even if he had done what they suspected, arrest and jail is not the penalty for selling loose cigarettes. A fine is. So. There's that. Then you have Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy playing with a toy gun in a park in Cleveland. 
cops roll up on him because they got a report of a man with a gun. They roll right up on him, charge right at him, jump out of the car and shoot him dead within two seconds. What did Tamir Rice do wrong besides being a black male in the city of Cleveland? That's all he did. And in fact, let's just get even further down on the ground. Ohio is an open carry state. White Second Amendment activists walk around with real guns in public all the time. I've seen them. I have yet to hear of a confrontation with the police that these people have. So their right to bear arms gets recognized. But Tamir Rice, with a report that there was a man with a gun, it didn't say that man with a gun, but a man with a gun, gets rolled up on by cops who come out of the car shooting. Because if you kill somebody within two seconds, you're not investigating, you're coming to take somebody out. This so, is what we're dealing with. And look, this is why I call it murder. Tamir Rice did not defy any authority. He didn't have time to do anything. He was just standing there. He gets blown away. Gilberto Flores in San Antonio. He was a domestic dispute. Cops get called. Flores runs, decides he can't get away, turns around, puts his hands in the air. He gets shot down. That's caught on video. So we have seen what can only be called murder. And do not tell me, well, we took it to the grand jury and they decided it was okay. Because just because it's legal, don't make it right. You kill innocent, unarmed people. I got to call that murder. I mean, that's also what Quentin Tarantino called it. But that's because there's reality. It's right there in front of you. And people have to stop avoiding it. Because the authorities will tell you that Tamir Rice was responsible for his own murder. And I'm not making this up. They actually, the city of Cleveland filed in a report in, a, in federal court, they filed a brief that said Tamir Rice was responsible for his own death. I've watched that video numerous times and there was nothing Tamir Rice could have done unless he could turn himself into being white. And that should not be the criteria for avoiding being brutalized or murdered by police. This has to stop. And this is something that uh, Cornell West and I issued a call for people right. to act to do, to stop so, them from getting away with murder. Carl, <clears throat> I think the question is, how do you convince the other side, right? Because, you know, we covered, I, I've shown that uh, Tamir Rice video, I've shown the Eric Garner video, unfortunately, far too many times. And, you know, Yet the other side will find excuses, right? So they'll say, well, Tamir Rice shouldn't have taken the orange cap off the end of the toy gun, right? So it's his, that 12 year old's fault for doing that, right? They'll say Eric Garner should have not sold loose cigarettes on another day. They say he should have immediately cooperated with the police as soon as they came to give him orders. They, you know, excuse after excuse. Now, saying, hey, wait a minute. Maybe your 12-year-old, he might have taken the orange thing off the gun too because he didn't know any better. Would you be happy if they shot him in two seconds without asking him if it was a gun, not a gun, if without coming anywhere near him? You know, it, it, the, it goes on and on. The guy at Walmart with the toy gun, they shoot him on, on yeah, sight. Crawford. Right, and, and so I know that. 
But we've made that case a thousand times, and yet, for some people, we haven't reached them. So I wonder if it, what the answer there is. Is it more protests? But then they look at the protests and go, oh, there goes those guys complaining again. They're always crying about racism when we already have Obama as president. I don't know what they're complaining about. And, and Carl, I think that part of the reason they do that is because in their context, the cops have been great to them. They, they, you know, I had this, I know you grew up in Baltimore, but I had a couple of Baltimore, ex Baltimore cops on the show, two different interviews. And one of them said something really interesting. Joe Crystal was a good guy. Uh, he had turned in someone else for abuse. And then, of course, they wrote him out of town, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and and he then he went to work in a white community in Florida. And in the white community, they talk about community service and how can we help the community, right, when they're policing. In Baltimore, they talked about basically how they're an occupying force and you got to make sure you keep these people down. Right, and they don't mean like keep them down in, in in poverty or anything like that. Just don't let them attack you. They're the enemy. Make sure you protect yourself. They talk in those terms, right? So he can see the difference. But for those people in that uh, Florida community, they see like the cops still come and do community service for me. Why are you guys so angry at these lovely people protecting us? So how do you break through to those people who are not seeing it from your perspective? Okay, first off. I'm not starting with the other side because there is a side that does justify everything the police do. Most of society thinks it's in the middle. They view it like, oh well, there's something happening, it's happening to those people over there. We want to bring to people the reality of what that is. Bring it in a way that it becomes undeniable. And then we want to challenge the people who think they're neutral, who think they're in the middle, because there really is no neutrality here. You know, if these horrors are being perpetrated, if they're being perpetrated on people because of the color of their skin or some other reason related to just who they happen to be, that is an outright injustice. And everyone must look at injustice and not say, will it happen to me, but is it happening? And if it's happening, it is something I must be concerned with. That's why we added to the slogan, stop police terror, which side are you on? Because that's how people need to look at it. And we have seen too many cases, historically in current day, of people looking at problems and saying, if it's happening to them over there, it's not my concern. I mean, we saw that in Germany with Jewish people, with the Romani people or the gypsies, with the communists, with the trade unionists, and people would say, well, I'm not one of them. And the point becomes you reach a point where there's nobody left to stand up when they do come for you. So you have to say this has to stop. And I consciously reach for the Nazi Germany example because we're dealing with what is in effect a genocide and a lot of people hate it when i say that they say carl okay there's problems but you're going too far with it well but what is a genocide and what happened to jewish people in nazi germany did not start with people being put in the concentration camps and gassed to death it didn't start with people being lined up next to open graves and being shot it started with Jewish people being identified, stigmatized, 
as a despised group in society, segregated, and it moved to the point of extermination. But that whole process was the genocide. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with groups of people, especially black people in this society, broad sections of Latinos, who are being identified, stigmatized, separated. That's a process of genocide. People being put in situations where they cannot thrive, survive and thrive as peoples. That's actually the international definition of genocide. That's happening right now. And you do not wait until it gets farther down the road to act to stop it. You got to say right now, this must stop. And it is our responsibility, all of our responsibility, not just the targeted people, but all of our responsibility to act to stop it. So, Carl, you know, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I, I know you've done some of those protests in New York. The one Tarantino was in was in New York. I know you've done uh, mass civil disobedience in New York before you got arrested in 2011 as part of that civil disobedience. Uh, in New York, they do stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. Now, again, the other side would say, hey, come on, guys, be realistic. Uh, blacks and Latinos do more of the crime uh, than white people in, in New York. Yes, they get pulled over disproportionately. But that's because they're looking at people who might be criminals. So that's what the other side would say. So how do you respond to that? Well, the reality is that people have been criminalized. Because, look, the entire economy of the country nearly collapsed, 2007, 2008. And that was due to some activity, a lot of which was centered in New York, right around Wall Street. There are were a lot of crimes, and I'm talking about actual crimes by the law in this country being committed in a concentrated area on Wall Street, no attempt was made to stop and frisk, either physically or electronically, the people who committed those crimes, even though there was a concentration of criminal activity there, which had devastating effect, not only throughout the country, but throughout the world, because the international economy nearly collapsed. So there are certain types of people who do get concentrated on and focused on in this question of, well, we're going after crime. And, and what's actually being gone after are the people, because you talked about me being arrested, protesting stop and frisk. I was arrested three times. The third time they held us overnight in the lockup in Queens. And I was in there with like 40, 50 people. Four or five of them were in jail because they did not have ID on them when the cops stopped them. I mean, think about that. You don't have your driver's license or any other ID on you. You happen to walk out of the house and forget it you end up in jail overnight. I mean, now, that was the law in South Africa under apartheid. Black people had to have their pass. There is no official pass law in New York City, either, and there never was. But that's what these people were in jail for. They weren't in jail because they were suspected criminals, but because they were black people who did not have an ID. This is what's going down. And it does not, it, it's not an anti-crime policy. It is an anti-black policy, an anti-Latino policy. It is criminalizing and demonizing whole groups of people that the authorities fear. 
They fear what response will these people make to the conditions they're forced to put up with. And they remember what my generation did when we were young, faced with conditions that arguably aren't as intense and bad as the conditions today. We stood up, we refused to take it, and sparked off a broader revolutionary movement that rocked this whole system back on its heels. They don't want this generation to do the same thing. So they have moved to criminalize them, to demonize them with the war on drugs, which was a war on black people and Latino people. And that's even made clear by some of its dynamics and parameters, the way in which crack cocaine became a drug that could very quickly get you life in prison, while powder cocaine was treated as a much different phenomenon the 100 to 1 disparity in terms of uh, legal penalties, 5 grams of crack cocaine getting you the same penalty as 500 grams of powder cocaine. In one hand, you're talking about a dealer if you got 500 grams. You talk about 5 grams, that's a kid trying to get high. But the legal penalty was the same because the people who were in that circumstance were what was being gone after, not the drug itself. So this is what we've been dealing with. It is unjust, it is illegitimate, and look, they got a reason to fear this young generation. I mean, we've seen it both in terms of the protests that swept the country around police getting away with murder, but we've also seen it in relation to uh, black students on college campuses standing up against racism, the way that that's spread across the country. This is a generation maybe on the verge of standing up and saying it will refuse to take these conditions in the way that my generation did when, when we were young. This is something the authorities greatly fear, and they ought to fear it, given the conditions that they're enforcing. And I'll tell you what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be standing with the young people who are standing up and saying no more, and I'm going to be bringing to them a message that things don't have to be like this. We can end all of these horrors, not just what happens to black people. We could end the, the violence and the attacks that come down on women in this society, the way in which the government is moving into their very private decisions over whether and when to become a mother or not. Right. We could end the way that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people get mistreated and abused. We could end the wars for empire, the destruction of the planet, the attacks on our immigrant sisters and brothers. And the way that we could do that is through revolution, nothing less. That's what's needed for that. And such a revolution is also something that's possible. It's something that I've been working on my whole adult life, actually. Okay, so let's pause on the revolution for a second. I want to come back to the revolution. Uh, but you said something very interesting there that I wanted to go back to. I, I know that in 1968, you, you got drafted in the Army, you're in the Army, they try to deploy you to Vietnam, you refuse. So as a conscientious objector, you sit for two years in prison in Leavenworth. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, and we know the civil rights struggles of that time and Selma, Alabama and, and all the other, the Freedom Riders and the Klan waiting for them in the middle of the night and the hot coffee thrown in the face and the diners and all that, that people went through. But you just said in some ways it's worse today than it was back then. Really? And, and why? Well, I think we have to look at it. Black people were outright denied rights 
across the board, right to vote. You had to sit in the back of the bus. You couldn't sit at the lunch counter. All of these different things. And this was horrible. It was illegitimate and unacceptable. And people stood up and fought that and on one level won some victories because a lot of those Jim Crow laws got removed from the books. People moved into different facets of society. You even begin to get black elected officials, first black this, first black that. But that became something that a minority of black people got. For the majority of black people, when you look at how things have changed, what has happened is they have remained on or near the bottom of society at a time when the, bot the bottom gets pulled out. The manufacturing jobs that people my age and my parents moved out of the South and moved into after World War II are now halfway around the world. So you have whole generations of young people growing up in situations where the ways to legitimately survive and raise families have been removed from their reach. You know, it's talked about as an underclass, but it's really a working class of people who there is no employment for. And this is where the criminalization and demonization comes in, where mass incarceration and police functioning like occupying armies in black and Latino communities fits in. So millions and millions of black people, that is their experience. Police marauding through the community, no legitimate ways to survive, being forced into some hustle or another if you're going to make it, and going in and out of prison because of the conditions that you're trying to deal with. So that's the reality for large numbers of people. And on top of that, what you get told is it is your own fault. You're the reason that this is happening. You don't get told, well, the corporations have moved the factories because they can exploit somebody in Vietnam or Thailand much more viciously than they do you. That's why you can't find a job. You get told it's your own fault. This, again, takes me to what we're going to get into about revolution because people did not choose to face these conditions. They got enforced on them. They got enforced on them by a system that does not and cannot meet the needs of the majority of people. And solving that problem is going to take revolution, nothing less. So, Carl, you know, it's interesting. I, I totally get what you're saying. Uh, we've touched on this on the Young Turks before. This interesting conversation takes it to another level, in my opinion. So, you know, we, we've you had Jim Crow, you had laws that kept black people down, segregation in the South and in other parts of the country as well. Uh, once that's removed, they have to come up with a more subtle way of keeping people down. So they say, okay, well, I, I'm going to now legalize it. Kind of like we used to have bribery before, and then they decided through Citizens United and other things, we'll just, just legalize the bribery so that the powerful can just buy the politicians, but instead of having it be illegal, it'll be legal, right? So, and in this case, uh, our war against black people and Latinos, uh, instead of saying, okay, uh, I, I'm not going to let you do this according to the law, well, I'm going to just find a way to put you in jail, right or wrong, right? And hence, there's a lot more people in jail now uh, than there was during the civil rights era. So they just kind of moved the, the goalposts in that sense. 
But that leads to the question of why. I mean, what? Because it's, I think, to the average viewer of this, they're going to think, well, that sounds conspiratorial. Why would white people or the people in power, why are they so afraid of blacks or Latinos? Why would they bother to do this in, in the way that you're describing here? Well, look, I touched on this in the 1960s when black people rose up. It put before the whole society what was being done to black people. And when people who didn't experience that begin to find out about it, it challenged them with, am I going to stand aside while this happens, or do I have a responsibility to act in relation to it? And even at the very beginning of the civil rights movement, you saw a number of white people who got involved in the struggle against what was coming down on black people. Also, the struggle of black people influenced other movements that were going on. The movement against the war in Vietnam became much more militant in the period when black people were rising up. A women's movement developed in the 1960s into the 1970s. Other movements developed and it actually sparked off a broader revolutionary movement that knocked the whole system back on its heels. They do not want to see a repeat of this and see, we got to be clear what we're talking about here. We're talking about a white supremacist system. This is not a conspiracy where white people in general sat down and said, let's see if we can hold down black people. Most white people don't get a say in this. All they get out of it is that they are not targeted in the same way that black people are, in the same way that Latinos are. That's all they get out of it. <clears throat> but they do have to look at the reality and decide where they're going to stand in relation to it. And you got to do that in relation to all the horrors. So, Carl, People, who is doing it and why are they doing it? It's being done by, like I said, a white supremacist system, a capitalist imperialist system that works by going for maximum profit and works by competing with rival capitalist imperialists. So the reason that the manufacturing capacity in this country has gone around the world is because if you're going to make the most profit, it's not going to be by paying living wages to workers here in this country, giving them better working conditions. It's going to be by finding people you can pay much less, work in much more dangerous conditions. And they do that by globalizing production. That internationalization of production has made it possible to produce things so much cheaper that you can produce them halfway around the world and ship them right. back here to be sold as opposed to making them here. That both viciously exploits the people in other parts of the world and it leaves people here increasingly in precarious economic situations. So, Carl, we've entered into territory where we have some disagreements, right? And and I don't okay, want to well, get it. I, I don't want to get know into that we'd the, agree on everything, right? Yeah, it's perfectly normal. <laughs> I just normal. thought we'd talk about it. That's right. That's right. So now there's. I, I want to leave trade alone because that's a complicated issue that uh, partly re uh, relates to this, but not completely. Uh, uh, but I'm I'm trying to drill down to here because I I have my take on it is that. There's the invisible hand, you know, Adam Smith talks about the invisible hand of the market, right? I think there's the invisible hand of power, right? 
So I don't think that George Bush and Bill Clinton and, and John Boehner get in a room and talk about how do we keep black people in. As you said, normal white people sitting in their community in Missouri or Alabama or Oregon aren't involved in that conversation at all, right? So that's that they're not part of that cabal if that cabal exists. I don't think that the cabal exists. I think that they just naturally do things that wind up being to their advantage. And so I try to figure out why it is that they feel that it is to their advantage to keep black people incarcerated because that is clearly what they're doing, right? I mean, the level of incarceration has gone up so dramatically that it's not an accident, it's not a coincidence, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm trying to figure out, Carl, if we have a real disagreement there or, or, or what your take on it is. Do you think Bush and Clinton Boehner are in a room and they make these decisions or do you think you know that it just comes about in a way where the powerful wind up winning, setting the rules uh, to their advantage. And then why why is it to their advantage to have all these minorities in jail? That's another thing I'm trying to figure out. Okay, here's two things you have to bring together. First, look, this system is aware that it does not have a future for large numbers of people, especially people on the bottom who are disproportionately black, disproportionately Latino. I mean, mainstream economists project that half of the young people growing up in the inner city will never find legitimate employment. And they have to figure out what do we do about these people. And from one end, you or I may sit down there and say, well, let's retool the economy to give them some productive roles that they can play in society. Or let's give them job training so that they can fit into the new economy that's developing. The problem though is that that does not create more profit for the capitalist class that actually runs this. So the approach is we have these people, we don't have anything to give them, to give them a real future, so we have to control them. And that is what came down, and that was decided to go at in ways that, frankly, there is conspiratorial aspects to. I mean, first, we can talk about a cabinet meeting back in the Nixon administration, where he said, according to several of his cabinet members who outed him on this, the problem is the blacks, and we have to devise a solution that does not acknowledge that's what we're dealing with. And then that's when they came up with wars on crime and wars on drugs that targeted black and then later Latino communities. Also, frankly, the war on drugs with its disparity in crack and powder cocaine penalties, there was a real clear conspiratorial aspect to that because medical people were saying at the time there's no medical difference between these two drugs. They're the same drug. There is no scientific basis for the disparity in punishment. The only reason for the disparity in punishment was who used them. And yeah. that people who we needed to control because we weren't, we have no future for them, use this drug. So the penalties will be piled on this one and not on that one. That's a drug used by more well-off people who are not people we need to control and criminalize. So there are conspiratorial aspects to this. 
Right. But it actually is the working of the system and the fact that it works on the basis of profit. And it's very important. One, we got to say to people, and that's why I became a revolutionary, that's why I still am, that things don't have to be this way. Through revolution, we could end all of these horrors. And there is leadership for this revolution. There's a scientific approach in the work that Bob Avakian's been doing to figure out how you make revolution, including in countries like this one, and how you bring a new world into being on the basis of making that revolution. And we got to spread that to people. And then at the same time, we have to mobilize people to stand up against these injustices that are being brought down. So, I've been focusing here so it, on Carl, mass incarceration and police terror, but in January, I'm going to be at the demonstration against the right to lifers who are attacking a woman's right to abortion because that's another horror that's being enforced in this society. They're literally moving to make abortion less and less available to women in large parts of the country. Yeah. That's another horror that I have to fight on, not because I want to have my right to have an abortion. That's not a direct problem for me, but it is an injustice which makes it a problem for me that I have to stand up on. And in relation to that, I will also say to people, we need revolution, nothing less, to see to it that this horror and all the horrors right. are ended. So so we're going to get to the revolution right now. Just, mm -hmm. I want to be clear on my views. Look, were there conspiracies in the past? Of course there were. Uh, we did coup after coup back in the 1950s, 60s, stretching into the 70s. We organized those. We've admitted to those. The U.S. government has admitted to those. So it's not like we didn't hatch conspiracies before. The idea that, oh, but we'd never do it at home is preposterous. Of course we could have done it at home. And I just think that it's gotten a little bit more sophisticated now, right? Where it's you don't have to have necessarily cabinet level meetings on it. The system uh, is a well-oiled machine that, that, that has been set on this path. Okay, now, if you want to take down that well-oiled machine through your revolution, uh, Tell me what that means, Carl. What does that revolution mean, and how are you going to do it? Well, we have uh, put forward a strategy for revolution in a country like this, and I would refer people, I'm going to talk about it, but I'd refer people to the website revcom.us where they can read the strategy for themselves and consider it in depth. But it basically comes down to that the very functioning of this capitalist imperialist system means that people are going to be hit with jolts you know whether that's the whole economy you know roiling and possibly snapping apart whether that's in the form of sharp attacks on immigrants or on black and latino people by the police whether that's upsurges of students on campus standing against racism or whatever, you know, but whatever form that takes, people are going to be up against things and they need to stand up and resist them. And they are going to stand up and resist them. We're seeing that now. And we have a strategic approach to it that we call fight the power and transform the people for revolution. That's what I'm actually doing as I fight around mass incarceration and police terror. I'm bringing to people the reality that these attacks that they're up against flow from the very way the system works 
And there is a way out of this. We don't have to continue putting up with this. We don't have to limit ourselves to can we incrementally reduce the problem. We can get rid of it through revolution. I tell people this kind of revolution is possible and it's necessary. I also bring the people the leadership we have through Bob Avakian and his work that has developed, led in developing that strategy for revolution and putting forward a vision for the kind of world we could bring into being through revolution. We also have published a constitution for a future socialist republic in North America that breaks down how the economy would work, how the political system and the government would work, how would we deal with education, how would we deal with people's rights, laws, and law enforcement. And, you know, look, when I talk with people about police getting away with murder in this society, I say to them, we should live in a world where those who are entrusted with public security, the people's police force, would sooner risk or lose their own lives rather than kill or injure an innocent person. That's the exact opposite of the way it goes down here, where Kids get confronted by police, the kid ends up dead. They give the police officer, the so-called trained law enforcement personnel, the benefit of the doubt over the children. And that gives you a, a reality where black parents have to instruct their children on what they must do and must not do if they're going to survive and encounter with a cop. Now, just think about that. You know, you're a parent. You have a child. You have to tell your child how to maneuver if they encounter a law enforcement personnel in order to try and keep them from getting killed. And even as you tell them all that, you probably know that even if they follow your advice to the letter, it isn't necessarily going to come out that way because you do have to say, what should John Crawford have done? Should he have not bought that toy gun in Walmart? Should he have not been standing there talking on the phone to his girlfriend while purchasing that gun? Or what sh should Tamir Rice have done? Right. And you could say he shouldn't have taken the orange strip off, but I've watched that video. He doesn't have the toy gun out. The cops couldn't even see the toy gun. So it doesn't matter whether there was an orange strip on it or not. They came to kill the black man that they had had a report right. had, a, had a, a weapon. So this is what we're dealing with. And what I feel I have to do is say to people, things don't have to be this way. It's kind of like, because a lot of times people will say to me, well, Carl, I like what you do about police brutality. I like what you do about mass incarceration. But do you have to keep bringing revolution into the picture? Do you have to keep bringing Bob Avakian into the picture? And I look at it like this. If I was a doctor and had come up with a cure for a disease that was rampant in society, would my approach be well, I don't want to tell people about this cure because some people might not agree with it. They might find it controversial. Or should I go out and tell everybody, hey, people, we got a cure for this disease. 
Well, I think I'd be the kind of doctor who would be saying, hey, people, we can cure this disease and let's work on that. Right. And it's the same thing with revolution to deal with the disease of capitalism, imperialism, and all of the symptoms that it brings down on humanity. I got to tell people that while I also get together with people to build resistance to these symptoms like the attacks on women. Yes. Mass deportations of immigrants, the Carl. destruction of the very environment of the planet. Well, so you know, we continue to have subtle differences. So you know, I, the word murder, you know, I'm not positive on how I feel about it. I don't think they came to kill Tamir Rice. Uh, they didn't know Tamir Rice. I think they were primed to react in the way that they did, and we have to fix the things that are priming them, right? the the training the propaganda and all that stuff but but the last question i have for you is um uh, is the revolution one of gradual political revolution so you wind up in a more socialist society that is more just in your opinion or is the revolution at some point you walk into the white house and you go president obama step aside please okay we're in charge now <laughs> how, what what do you mean by that okay what i mean by that is that it will come down to a revolutionary people numbering in the millions and millions having to meet and defeat the attempts at violent suppression that the old order, this capitalist imperialist ruling class and society will attempt to bring down. And then moving on to reconstruct the political structure, the economic structure and all the other institutions. It won't be just a gradual, more socialization of the society, and then it just grows into socialism and communism. What will be going on, though, because it's not time to do that yet. There isn't a revolutionary people numbering in the millions. People are not ready to put it on the line for revolution. And the old order is not to the point where it cannot continue to rule in the old ways through justifying the things that it does and winning enough of society to back go with those justifications and others to sit by and let the horrors go down. Well, things ain't got away from that yet. We got to work on that. And the way that we work on that is what I talked about, fight the power and transform the people for revolution. Right. Go to the horrors that are being inflicted on people. Build resistance, and as we build resistance, speak to where do these horrors come from? Why do they happen? Why is it that this country's economy is as addicted as it is to immigrant labor? Because those are people who can be very ruthlessly exploited, but also people who can be exploited without having any rights in society. And then they can become a target for ostracization, for marginalization. We got to bring that out. This is what's actually happening here. It isn't people are marauding across the southern border to take our jobs. The economy is built in such a way that it requires the labor of those people because they can pay them much less and mistreat them and abuse them in other ways that they can't ab abuse citizens, but they also play a role as a convenient scapegoat. We that's what we have to do on all of these fronts, build resistance and bring to people an understanding of why these things are happening, but also that they don't need to happen. Things can be different through revolution. We could bring a whole different world into being.
All right. Carl Dixon. That's going to be the buildup right. to that point about meeting and defeating the attempts at violent suppression. And okay. again, the website revcom.us is a place where people can find out what we're doing, what we think, and what we think the future revolutionary society and world needs to look like and how we can get there. All right. All of the links will be down below uh, this video and TYT interviews, so you can check that out. Carl Dix, one of the founders of Rise Up October, thank you for coming on the Young Turks and sharing your views with us. We really appreciate it.